Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion, and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including at Cure for Low Prices, Jared W., Dale H., Luke A., and Dave V. We are talking today with Travis McPherson, Vice President of Corporate Development at NextGen Energy, an Athabasca Basin, Canada-focused uranium developer advancing the Aero Project. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol NXE and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NXE. Travis, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. You bet. So, Travis, uh, let's let's go into your background before we get into other stuff. Uh, we typically start that off with with background. Uh, tell us your background in the natural resource business, and then tell us how you came to end up at NextGen. Yeah, so I, I uh, graduated from university here in BC at the University of British Columbia in their business program, and then immediately went into investment banking and uh, worked in there for a number of years, uh, focused entirely on the natural resources and mining sector specifically. Uh, from there, uh, got headhunted and went to a gold producing company that was listed in Toronto. Um, Helped out on some M&A as well as some some capital restructuring mandates, and then uh, got to know the guys at NextGen, specifically Lee Courier, the founder and CEO, um, pretty early on, like when the company was first founded or first went public, anyways, in 2013, and then joined them in uh, early 2014, um, right around the time of Discovery, and uh, have been with them ever since. And I'm in charge of kind of the corporate development, which is a pretty broad uh, bucket, but it incorporates things like investor relations, um, obviously M&A related activities and uh, processes, and then uh, work very closely with Lee on on uh, and the board on on strategy and and uh, and really optimizing what we have here at NextGen. Okay. Well, give us a snapshot of the management expertise there, uh, the capital structure of the company, uh, maybe some key insider ownership that you'd like to mention, and uh, and how at these levels that management is aligning themselves with shareholders. Sure. So, uh, you know, it might be worthwhile kind of, you know, determining or going back into the history of, of NextGen and how it was kind of founded because it speaks to both the experience of, of the management and board and uh, and kind of their vision so it was founded in the 12 months following fukushima which i think should speak directly to the fact that uh founders or management and the board um you know are true contrarians and uh basically did did the research uh determined both from the macro as well as the micro looked at had had the opportunity lee specifically worked at first reserve international which is uh large private equity fund based in Connecticut, but uh, he worked in their London office with uh, someone who's on our advisory board named Charles Scorer as well, who's a seasoned uranium trader and marketer. And uh, they basically looked at every asset around the world from a technical, financial, and sovereign risk perspective. And 
in that review looked at over 200 projects in the Athabasca Basin uh, because obviously if you're if you're looking for exploration you want to be looking for elephants to take on exploration risk it's not really worthwhile looking for small deposits so the only place in the world that you can find that in uranium is in the Athabasca Basin and so focus there um, and basically came up with uh, the southwestern part of the basin and looking at assets over there because you know the east eastern part of the basin is the historic producing area of the basin there's you know three mills operating over there well I guess right now there's only one mill operating um, but at the time there was three mills operating three mines operating obviously today we have one mill one mine operating um, but in that eastern part of the basin it's um, you know it's had a very long history of exploration a lot of drill holes poked in the ground um, it also benefited from a lot of outcropping at surface so it's kind of a low-hanging fruit situation in the east we decided that well because it's a basin obviously the um, the geological setting is is just as perspective in in other parts of the basin and specifically we focused on the southwest uh, because there's we were able to gain a really large land package of over 260,000 hectares of land there that straddled the basin boundary and today you wouldn't be able to put that together we utilized that period in the 12 months following Fukushima where the sentiment was either obviously a very low point to acquire the, that that portfolio package and really the thinking there is why why wouldn't it be any different than what's on the east um, geology is all the same the only difference is there's kind of a hundred meters of, of overburden that masks all the riches below and so using uh, the latest technology and magnetics and geophysics we were acquired the projects and, and went about exploring and doing our work on them and again using newer age technology you're able to see down more accurately and uh, and then you know in the first drill hole of the arrow target we hit arrow uh, in February of 2014 Valentine's Day and uh, so it was just you know we just passed our five-year anniversary of the discovery and um, yeah since then I've drilled kind of in the order of 350 more holes there uh, through and uh, I'm on the on the uh, precipice of uh, releasing a final feasibility study and uh, the final stages of the permitting process. Okay, well, I want to ask you a, a couple things, and then I'll go back to my original question. Um, so, give us a uh, an idea of the, the key people that were back at NextGen at the time, you know, uh, from setup at 2013, 2014, et cetera. Uh, give us kind of the key people that, that uh, led to that discovery. And then also, can you tell us, what's your thoughts on the Eastern side? Do you think that some of these deep hosted deposits, similar to Arrow, do you think that uh, the Eastern side has not really seen that kind of poking in the ground? So, yeah, I mean, the, manager, the people that were involved at Discovery are, remain involved key people wise you know we have uh richard patricio chris mcfadden uh craig perry lee courier obviously who's the founder of it is still the ceo um in terms of technical on the ground it was a gentleman by the name of andy brown who was the vice president of exploration at the time of discovery um and uh, his background was uh very long 
with uh, Rio Tinto and uh, all in uranium primarily. Um, and then he stepped off just kind of entering retirement age, um, you know, the year following discovery. Um, and so that that's kind of the team. So so again, most of the team remains in place from, from that time. Obviously, we've, we've had some board, we've made some additions, subtractions at the board level. Most recently, um, obviously, Brad Wald, the, the former premier of the province of Saskatchewan, just joined us um, last week, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, really good addition. Um, and uh, we've also made a couple other additions with Sybil Veenman. Um, who's a, a very seasoned corporate director, um, and uh, Carrie Howlett, who's uh, Saskatchewan-based and also a very seasoned uh, executive. Um, she's on the board of Sask Power and a few other things. So um, excellent additions there, but but uh, key people still involved uh, from the time of discovery to today. Uh, so that continuity exists. Um, and then in terms of the East and your question about the East, in perspective, yeah, I mean, we we uh, we had a balance of projects in the east, exploration projects there, because of what we had found in the southwest, being this monster um, called Arrow. We knew that that those portfolio of projects that we had in the east, we weren't going to be able to get to because there's no synergies um, at all. Being in the east to the to the southwest, it's kind of 700 kilometers away. Um, it's you know, you're basically setting up two distinct camps, organizations, really, in those two places. And so we um, decided to actually carve those out, those projects out, and um, raise some money. Um, and so those projects are now in a company called ISO Energy. ISO has since gone on to um, acquire a few more projects off of Cameco and others, uh, some Japanese partners in the east. And uh, most recently, have just made a discovery at their hurricane zone on the local rock project, which they acquired off Cameco. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, and NextGen, uh, on behalf of the shareholders of NextGen, still re it remains a 55% shareholder of ISO Energy. Um, so, yeah, very, very supportive. And, and, and obviously, like the prospectivity in the East, it's just given what we have, the scale, the disruptive nature of what we have in the Southwest, we have to focus all of our technical and financial uh, wherewithal on that project and can't dilute the focus away from that at all. Right, and I, I see Craig's uh, spending more time at ISO uh, now with with him. Uh, almost a, actually, 100% of his focus is on ISO, and and NextGen, of course, is a key shareholder, uh, kind of backing up uh, ISO. I think it's got a a good situation uh, from from the discovery standpoint. So, thanks for the information on that. Um, hmm. So, on another subject. Uh, so some out in the market tend to think that NextGen is really the only uranium business worth looking at going forward and that the rest of the junior, uh, you know, exploration group and development side is, is kind of a waste of time outside of maybe Canada or even NextGen. What, what are your thoughts on that thought process? Uh, no, I mean, I, w I wouldn't agree with that at all. I think the reality is, and I think the world will come to learn that a lot of the, the areas that, from a supply side that the world is relying on, both in terms of projects that are in development, late stage exploration, or, or have been mothballed because of of uh, low grades and, and cost issues. You know, I, I, we think that as time goes on, the world will come to the realization that, that those projects are a lot more difficult to bring online or won't come online. 
either because of social issues or technical issues. And so uh, we think that there's a real place for um, a lot of uranium to come to market um, because we believe that the supply gap will be significantly worse than what is perhaps forecasted in the media, I guess the uranium media, which um, is given, you know, again, the opaqueness of the market is something that is um, is difficult to get through. But no, I would say, you know, for us, yeah, Arrow is going to fill a significant part of that gap, but there's definitely uh, room for others, uh, absolutely, including exploration. And as we all know, I mean, uh, exploration takes time, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of luck, uh, and a lot of different things. And so, you really do have to invest in exploration, you know, 10 or 15 years, 20 years even before you think that that will need to come to market. And that's why, you know, you need to be focusing on that today. Because if you look out on uh, the build out that China is doing, the build out that India is doing, the resurgence of Japanese reactors coming back online, um, the U.S.'s new commitment to nuclear, um, you know, it's really coming around. Uh, again, and having a resurgence. Um, and so we think that that supply-demand picture will be vastly different uh, going into next decade and, and onwards and really just compounding thereafter. Right. And the stars are certainly aligning across the board with the, with a number of events that are taking place and recent recent uh, U.S. Uh, starting to maybe become involved with the industry outside of the U.S. and also inside the U.S. And so that's certainly uh, encouraging. Um, so on, on production, we, we just mentioned, you know, this, this project has a, a PFF stage, uh, you know, scenario of, of maybe some 29 million pounds per year uh, when it com is commissioned. Um, in your opinion, how does this, this kind of supply how, what do you think on impact that that would have when this comes online? Do you see that at that point the demand would be so significant that uh, that this 29 million pounds would would maybe not hurt the market, or or would it just be a such a huge demand situation that uh, this would be a a welcomed thing? Yeah, I mean we definitely believe that firmly. Um, you know, both. I mean, people like to just group supply all together, but the reality is supply from a given jurisdiction in uranium is especially important. And, you know, if you look what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of the um, absolute dominance of uh, Russian or, or FSU, former Soviet Union states, production levels as a percentage of global supply, because you've had the West, you know, OECD nations that have historically been large producers and suppliers of nuclear fuel um, to global utilities. Um, you know, a lot of those mines are just getting old now. Um, you know, time goes on and, and mines deplete. And the Kazakhs and Russians are really the only ones that have uh, expanded that production. And so you have a situation today where if you're a, a utility sitting in the West, uh, you're very heavily reliant on you know, Russia and Putin and and the like uh, for a critical energy source, um, which, you know, is just something that I think is not um, very sustainable. And it's something that is not a comfortable position uh, for uh, utilities to be in. And so something like Arrow coming online with that volume 
is very, very necessary um, and something that will will have a place. Uh, there's no question about it. It's a disruptive asset. It is going to be the largest and lowest cost uranium mine on planet Earth. So um, it will displace uh, material. There's no question about that, but uh, we aren't interested in suboptimal uh, market conditions. And so this will be optimized at the time of production. There's no question about that. So between the PEA and the PFS, the mine life was reduced to nine years while the production level was increased. With a project of this size and, and the potential for it to be generational, uh, what is the benefit of speeding it up from both an investor standpoint and a local community development standpoint? Do you see the nine years as something that's expandable to make it generational? Uh, why, why, the, why the quick time and, and really high production? What's the thought behind that? Well, so from PEA to PFS, all that happened was production profile stayed uh, the same over the first five years. And then we just extended that production profile of the first five years to the first nine years now. And then we lost 100 million pounds in the inferred category. I mean, we didn't lose it, but because of the technicality of going from a PEA to a PFS, PEA, you can incorporate inferred resources, PFS, you cannot. So it's really just related to that technicality of reporting standards in Canada under the National Instrument 43101 guidelines. So um, this year in 2019, we're we're converting a lot of that uh, inferred material into the indicated category, and then a lot of the indicated into the measured category, the highest confidence level. Um, so we'll definitely be expanding that mine life um, as we go into the feasibility study, which will be out kind of this time next year. Um, and really that production profile is completely dictated to us really by the deposit. Um, you know, it sounds like it's a big project, but it's, it, and it is from a volume, like a pounds perspective, but in terms of a tonnage perspective, it's a tiny mine. You're talking about a thousand tons a day. Um, you know, the shafts are basically the smallest shafts you can build. Um, and it's really just a, a complete, um, uh, result of the the grade and the value in that rock and the um, geometry of the deposit being completely vertical being completely hosted in the basement rock where you don't have any ground condition issues um, and then there's no surface water as well so it's it's really optimized from a from an extraction point of view and that's really what drives that what what you're calling kind of high volume at the back end but in the front end going into the mill it's actually very low tonnage Okay, well, I appreciate the the uh, clarification on that, and and uh, I'm sure that there's lots of potential to expand the time there, and you know, keep. Oh yeah, keep I mean, the, we uh, we basically yeah. we basically just stopped drilling. Uh, the deposit remains open in every direction. We just stopped drilling for more because uh, you know we're sitting here with you know 350 million pounds of global resources, and so we need to. Uh, that is more than enough to justify a wildly economic and long-term project. And, uh, you know, it's going to generate a billion dollars in after-tax cash annually, um, Canadian. So um, once we're generating that type of cash flow, yeah, we'll have tons of rigs expanding the deposit and, and growing it out. We have no doubt that sure. this will be a, a true generational asset. So of the uh, 29 million pounds per year, how does the company see supply going out in terms of filling 
long-term contracts, uh, how, how will that 29 million do you do you see in your view? How will that kind of be allocated? Will that be all in long-term contracts or will some of that be loaded into the spot markets? How do you guys see filling that? Yeah, I mean, we, ha we definitely haven't finalized our strategy in terms of percentages and that sort of thing. We are, you know, if we go under the traditional method, yeah, it'd be heavily weighted towards long-term contracts, um, you know, 70, 65, 70 plus percent under that uh, or higher. Uh, you know, I think Cameco, the existing producer in Canada, I'm fairly certain that they do all of their material under long-term contract. There's obviously huge benefits to that versus pure spot exposure, um, but it completely depends on the cycle that you're in. The benefit we have, obviously, in terms of being able to have um, more spot exposure is just given the cost structure of the mine, having it be you know, $5 operating costs, $10, less than $10, all in sustaining costs, uh, you know, per pound. So it's it's able to uh, work in any pricing environment uh, if you go back for the last 50 years on an inflation-adjusted basis. So uh, it truly is low, low cost. And so while we haven't finalized what the exact mix looks like, it'll likely be um, weighted towards long-term contracts. But and that will all depend on on a lot of different things at the time. So, have there been any discussions about uranium offtake uh, partners at this point, and and when might uh, the company have something definitive uh, occurring on that front? Yeah, we yeah for sure we're uh, we're definitely uh, in discussions with a number of groups um, and and go to all the conferences and that sort of thing to uh, to present and speak to all the end users um, globally. Our position on that is uh, because our view on uh, how the market will develop uh, over time and the fact that, um, like, let's put it this way, we could sign a contract tomorrow, uh, but there's there's contracts and there's actual contracts. And based on the fact that we don't have definitive timelines for when this would come out into production, given we still have to go through finalizing the permitting process, and that's really the delta. We don't know how long that will take, and we, I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit. But, but because we don't have uh, exact time that we will be operating, um, while we could get a contract, there'd be a million outs in it, and it's not a real contract. We, the only way we're going to sign contracts is if they're tied to ex time of delivery, and they're real contracts. So, um, we are obviously, you know having this type of volume, this type of scale from this jurisdiction, everyone's aware of us. Uh, we've been in discussions with um, all of them or most of them anyways. Um, and there's huge buy-in for this project to come into production, but we're not interested in signing, uh, you know, what I'll call uh, kind of a, a fake contract. We're only going to be signing definitive ones and those can only really come at the point in which we have more clarity around the permitting timeline or definitive clarity, I guess I'll call it around the permitting timeline and thus delivery of first pounds out of arrow. Right. No, I think you made a good point because we see contract signing for the sake of having a contract. You know, we see there's even, you know, if you can set it up right, you can even have someone just do a contract just to just to show you have a contract and we've seen that in the industry uh at least in in my view we we have um and so it's it's kind of interesting that you that you mentioned that you know there's some folks just just having a piece of paper to wave in their hand somehow they think that that's <laughs> beneficial um yeah. but you you mentioned 
you mentioned timeline, Travis. Give us give us a walkthrough. Give us a timeline of the project from today, uh, to, you know, until potential commissioning and production. Can you kind of just walk us through uh, kind of a major milestone step by step, along with kind of an each year uh, to when we might see this sucker, uh, you know, get online? Yeah. So so we're currently working through uh, a two phase large scale, well, the largest in the company's history drill program, which is, again, aimed at um, converting a lot of the existing indicated resources into the measured category, as well as converting more of the inferred into the indicated category to come up with a measured and indicated resource base to expand the existing mine life of the PFS in a final feasibility form, which will come out kind of Q1 2020. At the same time this year, we're working through all the final um, compilation documentation work for the environmental assessment uh, and licensing process, um, which, and that obviously incorporates um, the indigenous engagement activities, um, which I'll speak to in a minute, but um, that's all ongoing with the plan of having everything um, with the regulators. Um, having all the sufficient data, everything to back it up. I mean, you know, it might sound like we're just in the, some people say, oh, you're just starting the permitting process. Our view is, well, we've actually been, we've had about five and a half years of, of data now um, that's all incorporated into that. So it's a really robust uh, data set that's going into the co uh, compilation of these uh, regulatory documents, and so they'll, the, the government will effectively have everything they need uh, to, to make a decision on this asset come mid-2020, so that'll be in the form of all the environmental impact statement, the um, licensing programs, the uh, feasibility study, everything um, in their hands. How long it takes them to review that and, and give us our approvals and everything, that is an unknown time at this point. Uh, but when you go through the science of the project, there's basically two parts of the permitting process. There's kind of what I'll call the science, and then there's the, the community-based part. So I'll start on the science, the science part of it. Um, we have massive head starts just given the fact that, um, you know, we're in, well, if you start from surface, we don't have any surface water. We're in an area that's 155 kilometers away from the closest town. Um, you know, it's on dry land. Um, you know, it's a very benign uh, environment um, that we've been monitoring now for a long time. So we're able to, to do effects modeling very accurately. Um, and then when you start going down, we're in the deposit itself is starts from 100 meters below surface. Uh, it's held 100% in the competent basement rock. So that is like effectively a granite rock, uh, for lack of a better term, but it's, it's really, really competent. Um, low hydraulic conductivity, all that stuff, all the work that we've done today in terms of metallurgical, geotechnical, hydrogeological work has all confirmed that, independently verified. And um, and uh, because it's in the basement rock, we're able to employ conventional mining. Um, and then, uh, again, being in the basement rock, you have very clean metallurgy. So we have effectively non-detect levels of selenium, antimony, arsenic. Uh, things like that, which really can cause headaches from a processing side. Um, 
and and thus a, a permitting side. Um, so we don't have to deal with those. Uh, we don't have any underground water issues because again, we're in the competent basement rocks. We don't deal with water inflow risks and, and, and the like. Um, and then from a design perspective and, you know, because it's in the competent basement rock, because of the margins that we're dealing with with this project, we um, probably three years ago, starting about three years ago, we came up with a design for 100% underground tailings management facility. And so underground tailings is obviously not unique uh, in mining, but what is unique is the fact that this is going to be 100%. And, and that is due to the fact that what we're able to do is actually mine benign waste out of the underground, bring that to surface in, in the form of a clean waste rock pile. It's non-acid generating and everything. Keep that at surface and then pump um, a cement paste backfill solution into the purpose-built chambers and store all of the tailings underground. Um, most mines or, or mines that use paste backfill or underground tailings to one degree or another, they generally um, they don't do 100% of the tailings because it is costly to, you know, mine out because effectively we're mining waste, like non like completely zero dollar value rock and bringing it to surface, which is obviously a very costly exercise that accounts for about 21% of our operating costs uh, in the PFS. But even adding on that 21%, we're still, you know, sub $5 cash costs. So um, that is uh, something that makes a lot of sense. And then obviously because of what's happened recently, uh, you know, the very uh, unfortunate disasters in Brazil and, and the people of Brazil have had to deal with, you know, that, that topic is obviously very, very topical, uh, but we've been going down that path for a while because it's the right way to do it. Um, and when you add in, you know, long-term monitoring and reclamation at the end of a mine, which a lot of people forget about that is we're, we're basically doing that as we will be mining. So it's, um, it's really advantageous. So, so from the science perspective, it really ticks a lot of the boxes from a from a permitting perspective. And then on the community side, the other part of of the permitting process and kind of social license to operate side of it, that is an area which the company is focused on prior to drilling our first drill holes. Is really um, getting to know the communities. Uh, you know, these communities that are 155 kilometers plus away from the project but but uh you know we call them our neighbors because uh, they are our neighbors really and um really just getting to know the fabric of those communities becoming part of the fabric of those communities and and uh finding areas in which we can uh, facilitate opportunity and and help and uh you know we made a lot of progress over the last five and a half years on that front where we've um you know we feed 1100 uh, school-age students breakfast every school day in uh, in the town of Lalosh uh, in northern Saskatchewan there. Two-thirds of those were going to school without breakfast prior to that. Um, partnered with the Breakfast Club of Canada in that initiative. So that's been fantastic. We've seen month over month over the last two years uh, increases in attendance, increases in enrollment rates, decreases in uh, violent incidents, so on. Um, we've also implemented the summer student program and mentorship program, which is the largest in, in northern Canada. Uh, we've seen 30 students come through the program over the last two years, four of which are on bursaries from next gen now at post-secondary institutions. And, and uh, this year is going to be the largest 
year for summer students and mentors that we've had. So it's it's having a really it's having a really generational and sustainable benefit to the community because it's just creating that window of opportunity for these outstanding youth that want to make a better life to have an avenue to to get exposure to different vocations and and have the opportunity to go to the post-secondary. And now what we're seeing is, you know, that started with grade 11s and 12s. And now what you're seeing is grade 9s and 10s really stepping up in the community, becoming positive members of society, becoming, not that they weren't before, but just really focusing on it even more and uh, and really attending school, you know, buckling down at school so that they are able to get into our summer student program and ultimately get into university and, and then come back to the community and, and improve the community that they're, that, uh, they're so proud to be from. So um, really making a lot of sustainable difference there. Those are just a couple of the things we're doing. It, it's, it's one of those things where it's, uh, you can, you know, there's kind of two ways of doing it for companies. You can write checks and, and have photo ops, or you can uh, go in and really dedicate your time and effort. And for us, we've chosen the latter. Um, and you know the time and effort when you add that in uh, that far outweighs any of the direct costs associated with any of these programs so it's um it's really excellent and uh, and it's just expanding every year that we go forward and um so we've have huge support from the from the uh, local communities um and uh, and our neighbors which is fantastic yeah, I think you hit on a few key points there. I think that uh, community outreach, community development work uh, with any project is really critical, and I appreciate you uh, you going through that and giving us the information. So on back back to the other side. Um, so you you you're pretty much of the opinion that uh, the company will have a complete submittal for the government to review sometime in 2020, and complete 100%. Uh, application ready to go at that time. Correct. Yeah, mid 2020, that will all be in the government's hands. Basically, after that, like I said, to just kind of finish off, I guess your your question. Then, then it's kind of a, you know, an X period of time for them to review. Um, which again, based on all those factors that I outlined before, uh, shouldn't be too onerous given you know the the relative uh, technical simplicity of this mine. I'm not suggesting that. This is easy um, or a, a layup, but in terms of mining goes, it's it, on a relative basis. It, it is uh, one of those, and um, and then whatever that period of time is for them to review it, then we get our approvals to construct and build the mine, and then uh, it's kind of a two to three year construction and commissioning phase after that. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that gives us a good, kind of a good indicator on timing. Um, so on the CapEx side, so we're looking at, uh, I think if I have my information right, uh, about 1.25 billion. Uh, what what blend of financing do you see kind of playing out in regards to debt, offtake, equity? Yeah, I mean, well, so you'll have offtakes to kind of backstop your debt, um, more or less the debt obviously with the the EBITDA margins and the and the cash flow generation of this project can sustain a, a very substantial portion of debt and so you're talking kind of 70 plus percent debt we do have a lot of byproducts so we have gold silver we have um saleable uh, rare earth elements as well so there's potential for streaming financing as well there's also no royalties on the project at all to date so it's completely royalty free other than obviously the ones that go to the government 
uh, once you're in production, but um, which are all incorporated in the costs of production. Um, you know, so there's opportunity to do royalty streams as well. And then, yeah, you could do uh, some kind of forward sale of, of production. So that that's kind of what we're looking at, that heavy, heavy debt load because it can sustain it very easily. Streams, royalties, offtakes, uh, making up the balance. Okay. So so on the debt side, just a little bit more, and on royalties, you mentioned that. Um, so the the debt, is there a potential to, is the company will be looking at some bonds that will be, uh, you know, listed in the markets? Uh, and also with, with the royalty side, will, will the company be, you know, reaching out to some of the major royalty, the major natural resource royalty groups like, like a, a you know a Wheaton, a Royal, uh, you know Franco Nevada. Will will they actually reach out and, and talk to these folks about uh, potential royalty deals with some of these big players in the natural resource sector? Uh, yeah. So on the debt, I'm talking more. Uh, it's very very unlikely that we would do uh, you know a junk bond deal or a high yield public debt deal. I'm talking more project finance debt. So that would be kind of specific to you know traditional bank debt. Um, or, you know, the debt funds, um, you know, of which there's, there's a few large ones that are involved in the, in the, uh, mining sector. And then with regards to royalty and streaming, yeah, I mean, obviously we would be speaking to, uh, in the event that the board and management wants to go down the path of doing that, then yeah, we would obviously be speaking to the, uh, natural uranium and, or the natural royalty and streaming companies in, in natural resources of which you named a few. Okay, that uh, sounds great. Appreciate the uh, the details on that. So, with uh, a recent press release came out that was uh, given some information on some sh shaft pilot hole drill results. Um, can you kind of break that down in layman's term for us, for the audience, and and how those results are impacting the project planning? Yeah, so basically those are kind of just holes going down to target depths relative to uh, shaft designs as they are planned and. Really, those are just making sure that you're not intersecting any ground condition issues, any mineralization, or anything else that would make those areas suboptimal from a shaft location perspective. And uh, all those holes came back with um, as excellent locations for uh, potential shaft locations. So, to uh, a couple of things. One is our understanding of the structures that host the deposit itself and where they are as well as where they are not. Uh, it also speaks to the ground conditions, which I spoke to before, where it is truly very, very competent rock. Uh, and so, you know, in finding the right location, once you're outside of the structures that host Arrow um, and you're in this, this uh, benign, uh, clean, competent base rock, Anywhere there is is ideal for uh, shaft locations. So we've we've now identified um, areas that would be optimal for that. Okay. Uh, on kind of on that subject, just a little bit talking about kind of this this uh, where, where this deposit is and the geology around it. For, so from a mine development standpoint, kind of just give us a little bit of an overview of of the geology of Arrow. Why is it superior in comparison to other major basin deposits? And are there some some drawbacks to the Arrow deposit that say another deposit might have a an advantage? Can you kind of compare and contrast for us, uh, you know, the deposit type and, and kind of why Arrow is superior in, in, in many ways? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I wouldn't use the word superior, but it's optimal uh, in our view for sure, and and it is differentiated in the sense that it is um, completely contained within the basement rock, and it starts from 100 meters below surface. So there are deposits where they're they are contained in the basement rock, but then if you're dealing with a lot of sandstone above it, like hundreds of meters of sand of the Athabasca sandstone above it, you still deal with a lot of those ground condition issues. Um, uh, for your shafts, uh, at, because really the the ground condition issues come from um, the depth and the pressure that comes with the depth um, of of that sandstone. So when you if you're kind of within 100 meters, obviously there's not a lot of pressure that can build on those as you get down four or 500 meters plus. You know, and and the basement rock is there, which is impermeable. You have this this really big pressure that comes into it when you try to start excavating cavities and obviously all the water that's associated with the Athabasca sandstone because it's very porous can cause issues. Now, Cameco's proven uh, to be very capable of, of managing those, um, those risks. Um, obviously, you know, they, they do come with uh, added, added challenges, but um, you know, luckily for us, uh, we just don't have to try to manage those um, or deal with those the way that Cameco has successfully to date. Um, so that that really is the the differentiator for Arrow is the fact that it is contained uh, 100% within the basement rock, no surface water, and uh, and very clean metallurgy as a result. And then, you know, again, even if you go to the next step in terms of geometry, you're getting in. I mean, it's completely ideal. You either want completely horizontal or you want completely vertical. And uh, the vertical nature of this really lends itself to um, and the fact that it's it's these structurally hosted shear zones, uh, graphitic shear zones, it's um it's really ideally uh, situated for long holes stoping, which is kind of a conventional bulk underground mining method, and then transverse stopes in the high grade area, um, which again is a very conventional method of mining. So you don't have to get into into too um, you know specific or or um, uh, you know. Uh, unique mining methods, so uh, that really is the differentiator. In terms of downsides to that, uh, I mean, there isn't really any downsides associated with any of those things I outlined. Um, you know, from a technical perspective, and I, I, it will come across as obviously bias being with the company, but technically, there's not there's not a lot of issues with it um, in, on a relative basis. Again, there's always going to be things that are uh, small issues here or there with mines nothing's perfect but you know as far as mining goes this one's really really we've been blessed by mother nature that's for sure right yeah no it's certainly interesting uh, the situation that's, that's that's occurring there and and how how it relates and compares to some others in the basin um so moving on to another subject is the company entertaining offers for for a potential buyout at this point, or has management really decided on taking the project all the way to become a producer? Yeah, I mean, we, we go under, uh, every day we approach on the basis that we're, we're taking this into production and we're rec gonna reclimate the mine. I think you can see that in the fact, I mean, if we were trying to just really juice this up and, and make some documents that were, and then go try to sell it to someone, you know, I don't think we'd go down a path of underground tailings management, you know, other things that have, Frankly, added upfront costs and added costs to the operating costs, um, in, in, unless we were truly um, going down the path of uh, and had the intention to, like I said, 
build, operate, and reclimate this project. So every single day we go into the basis of that. We know what the value is to us on any given day. So we kind of we view it very, very dispassionately, frankly. We kind of view it like we're at point A today here on the on the lower left of the chart and um we're moving up towards point B, which is in operation and fully um ramped up. And any day we're just tracking along that line and if an offer comes in that that makes it so our trajectory changes to above point B as we can do it ourselves, then then we'll recommend that that, that offer gets taken by shareholders. If in the event that it it sets itself on a trajectory that's that in our view and the board's view is lower, um, well then we we won't take that uh, or we won't recommend that to shareholders. Um, and given you know the investment by Lee Cushing's group uh, CEF Holdings out of out of Hong Kong and, and Canada, um, which is a joint venture between Lee Cushing and his Hong Kong Holdings and then uh, CIBC Bank here in Canada, you know that is um, they control about 18, 19% of the company. Um, management and the board kind of controls another 10% of the company. And so with Li Ka-shing's invest, or CEF's investment came uh, an investor rights agreement whereby um, the contractual voting obligations associated with those uh, shares have been uh, signed over to management and the board of NextGen under an investor rights agreement. So effectively, that means that um, a board-supported bid, CEF and their affiliates has to support that, vote in favor of that, um, regardless of their views on it. Um, uh, you know, in the event that there's a hostile bid, so an unfriendly offer, um, they cannot tender into that bid unless the bid gets to 67 of the remaining, 67% of the remaining. So when you take out Lee Cushing or CEF's uh, investment and management in the board, you're talking about getting to 67 of kind of 71%. So really you're talking about like effectively 95 plus percent uh, voting in favor of this hostile bid, which uh, is, you know, practically is, is impossible. Um, and then they can't sell their shares into the market without A, our consent, and B, uh, an evolving list that we provide them as to who they cannot sell to. And that list can change at any time uh, and include any names of organizations, individuals, anything we want. So really those shares are, are locked up, uh, which is huge, and then combined with the board management's ownership. So um, the good thing is now we are truly in, uh, you know, us and our shareholders are in control of our own destiny now. We don't have to worry about um, opportunistic um, bids and that sort of thing. So it's um, we're, we're really positioned well to take this into production. Um, you know, that being said, we're not we're not a group that just needs to prove to the world that we can build and operate a mine. At the end of the day, we know it begins and ends with the money and shareholder value. And, and that's something that we'll optimize. But, you know, the value of a, of a producing company generating a billion dollars in free cash flow, that uh, immediately, like if we were in that position today, we're immediately jumped into a top 15 global mining company from where we are today. And so the value associated with that is enormous, especially relative to the market capitalization of the company today. Uh, we know we're not suggesting that we're, we should be valued at that ultimate value today. But the value that we are valued at today clearly doesn't reflect 
that end, and that's related to yeah, people's uh, uncertainty around permitting timelines and also the macro environment in terms of uranium. It's still not, uh, you know, people are still not firmly believing that that uh, that the moves by Cameco and Kazakhstan and others in terms of cost-related issues and, and turning production off uh, is going to balance the market and, and the midterm to long-term. Well, I appreciate you holding, you know, and giving out some of that, you know, information and, and key points on on the uh, kind of the structure and, and obviously the major shareholder there. Um, and I think you're right. I think a number of people are gun shy across the board about the industry uh, s- still at this point uh, significantly. So, you know, there's a cast of characters kind of circling the Athabasca Basin area looking for uranium or trying to advance their deposits into production. What are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on any of these companies uh, outside of NextGen uh, or anything you'd like to mention about uh, the Athabasca Basin and the popularity of it? Uh, anything you'd like to mention on that front? Yeah, I mean, in our view, it's the best place in the world to be looking for developing or producing uranium. The regime in Canada and, and Saskatchewan specifically is is absolutely fantastic and the best place that any of us have ever worked in. So it's uh, in our view, it's absolutely the place to be and it's the place that the world will want uranium from going forward again, given that uh, new, relatively new reliance on former Soviet Union or Russia uh, controlled uranium. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's lots of room for for the companies that are developing resources, exploring for resources, uranium resources in the Athabasca Basin. So we're huge, huge supporters of, of the basin and, and everyone uh, involved in the basin. So outside of the basin, are there any outside of Canada? Let's take it outside there. Are there any uranium businesses or any jurisdictions that you find interesting at this point? Yeah, I think Australia has some great, great resources and a great history of uranium mining um, and and uh, and expertise down there. It's a, it's a fantastic market and obviously OECD nation country. So it's, you're talking about the same from a jurisdictional perspective. You're saying you're talking about the same void being filled with production out of Australia. So to me, that would go hand in hand with the basin. Obviously, the basin has a completely different size and grade profile than Australia does, but um, you know, it's a fantastic jurisdiction with some really good deposits and projects down there. Um, the US obviously has an opportunity with some support from the government potentially coming up to um, try to rebuild a bit of it, you know, history in uranium mining. And so that'll be uh, interesting to see how that how that comes and, and what kind of support they get from their government. But, um, you know, the U.S. is, you know, again, if you just step back, they, they're still the largest consumer until China overtakes them in the near future. But they're still the largest consumer of, of uranium. And uh, they produce, you know, extremely low levels of uranium relative to their ownership or their requirements. So um, that's obviously a jurisdiction as well that makes a lot of sense to be uh, exploring and developing uh, uranium resources. So in your mind, what do you think is the biggest hurdle at this point, Travis, for the uranium price to kind of start its push higher? Well, I think I think it already has started its push higher. I think um, the, the, the supply that's come offline as a result of of cost of production and, and the price relative to the price of, of production or relative to the price in the market of uranium, both in the spot market and, and the contracting market, which hasn't, I mean, frankly, the contracting market hasn't really existed in any meaningful way since Fukushima occurred in, in March of 2011. So 
you effectively take that off the table. So there's not really any contracting that's happened in that period of time. And then um, the spot market, uh, you know, has been there, but it's really been dominated by traders pushing paper around. And so there's kind of really been this this disconnect. But I think you've seen now with with MacArthur River shutting down, with Kazakhstan uh, reducing its production, and then obviously prior to both those occurring, there was a lot of production, um, or not a lot, but there was some production anyways that has come offline just because the resources have, have been depleted, you know, and then over the next couple of years, you have a couple of really historically significant Western sources of supply coming offline via, obviously, Rossing's been sold to the Chinese. There's not much left uh, in that deposit. And then, um, you know, Ranger in Australia as well, which at one point was the largest Western world uh, mine or one of the most significant sources of uranium in the Western world is only got a couple of years left on it and then it's it's done. And so that's kind of the, the position that we're in today. So, so Travis, tell us why investors should be taking a stake in where NextGen is today. What would you say to potential investors considering the company? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a true tier one um, disruptive. The disruptive nature of it, you know, we, there's terms have been thrown out of strategic and tier one and everything. I think the best term is disruptive. It's it's the largest, lowest cost producing source of uranium or will be, and when you can buy that at you know a billion dollars, call it Canadian market cap, uh, you do that all day because the ultimate value of this is not just what it's worth when it gets into production, so what it's worth for incumbent players to not get disruptive. You know, it's it's very similar to you know the tech industry or any of the other industries that are currently getting disrupted. You've seen entire very significant historical businesses basically become defunct as a result of disruption because those companies couldn't move fast enough to uh, get up to speed and and manage the change that was occurring. This is the exact same situation. It just happens to be in mining. And that value, uh, frankly, is is indeterminate, really, because you're talking about what it's worth for incumbent business to stay alive um, and, and keep producing indefinitely into the future. So there's a lot of avenues for a lot of value. And, you know, you can buy a tier one asset right at the turn of the cycle. I can't see why why you wouldn't want to do that. So how can investors reach out to the company for more information? Yeah, I mean, you can they can visit our website, www.nextgenenergy.ca, and there's uh, contact information on there. Uh, my contact information is on there. So, yeah, any of your listeners are more than welcome to, to reach out to the company or if they're in Vancouver, uh, pop by the office and uh, say hello. Okay. Well, Travis, we covered a lot of information. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about NextGen and, and explaining the, the situation and the uh, potential we appreciate you coming on and best of luck with next gen. Hey, thanks very much. Really appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you in the near term.